Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This week on Heat of the Moment. How the term just transition went from a niche idea in the American labor rights movement to a global call for economic, social, and environmental transformation. It also means providing a fair transition for those workers in traditional sectors that face disruption, including through retraining and social safety nets. De Paris pour le est I'm John Sutter. This season, we're taking a hard look at a concept called just transition. As we ditch fossil fuels, which we must do as fast as possible, who is affected by the shift? Who is benefiting? Or who should benefit? What's fair? And who should front the money to get all of this done? It is not only about jobs. It is about industrial restructuring so that no one is left behind in this ecological transition. That's Mustafa Kamal Gay, the Global Coordinator for Green Jobs at the International Labor Organization at the United Nations. He spends his days thinking about how to protect workers in this green transition. And for him, this is about way more than just a paycheck. And it is not only workers that have issues at stake. It is also enterprises that must innovate, work differently, produce goods and services differently, and manage their workforce differently. It is also about communities, communities that own resources that need to be diversified. They have to find different ways to generate wealth and economic activity. The impacts of these upheavals will be distributed unevenly. All of us are going to be affected, but some will be impacted more than others. Places like the Mpumalanga region of South Africa, which we heard about in the last episode, will be hard hit by the transition away from fossil fuels. The workers and the companies that employ people there will be gravely affected, yes, but it's also about the small businesses that support them, the lunch counters that feed them. Even schools and other government services can be wiped out when tax revenues dip or go away. An entire town can shut down. Places like North America and Europe may have the financial solvency to help buffer this transition, but developing countries will need some help. Take the case of uh, a country like South Africa, heavily dependent on coal. That is the same for India. So, so therefore, some regions and countries will have to be doing much more because of their dependence on particular fossil fuels from which the world needs to, to phase out, which means that unless these emerging economies are part of the global effort, it is just materially going to be impossible to achieve the objectives of the Paris Agreement. The historic 2015 Paris Agreement included the term just transition for the first time. The agreement serves as the global community's guide to reaching net zero carbon emissions sometime around the year 2050. And so it's significant that the just transition framework was embedded in the very document that will guide countries' climate change policies. The benefits of making this transition could be huge. 
the International Labor Organization, where Gay Works, says that there could be as many as 24 million more jobs created by 2030 if the Paris Agreement is fully implemented. An additional 70 million jobs on top of that if we transition in a way that takes social and economic well-being of whole communities into account as well. Still, that doesn't do much to assuage the concerns of workers who are dealing with job losses now. When there is this collective engagement, a dialogue process that can build consensus, it is possible to find pathways, but it's not an easy process if left alone for workers or enterprises alone to deal with it. And so we head back to the front lines of this transition. That's where reporter Elma Schutz hit the road to attend a town hall meeting in a coal-rich region of South Africa. It was a gathering of stakeholders, from the government to industry and activists, all trying to make their voices heard, and all of them vying to make sure that their constituents aren't left out. In 400 meters, turn right. I've been driving for about an hour on this long, straight road that normally you take out of Pretoria or Johannesburg to go to, say, a nature reserve, like the Kruger National Park. It's all quite flat and beautifully green. And then, sort of out of nowhere, you start seeing all these street signs pointing towards factories and power stations. Suddenly, the horizon is filled with a sort of grayish smoke fog, smog. And you come to Emalachleni, previously known as Vitbank. And Emalachleni means the place of coal for a very good reason. Turn right, then. Your destination will be on the right. Okay. Hello, how are you? I'm good. I'm looking for the consultation with the Presidential Climate Commission. Do you know where that is? Uh, I think you can try to The Presidential Climate Commission, or PCC, is South Africa's planning body for instituting a just transition in the country. A group of ministers, officials, civil society activists and researchers have been working for almost two years on developing a framework and actively making the country more climate resilient. An important part of this is running consultations with stakeholders and communities. That's why I'm in Imalakhleni, in the Mpumalanga province. I finally find the proceedings, which in stereotypically South African fashion start almost an hour late, but once the community has filled up the old room in the town theatre, the commissioners speak to them full of conviction. Dr Crispin Orver, for instance, manages the policy and research that the PCC plans. You're the energy hub of this country. Uh, for decades, we've been mining your coal and burning it here at huge environmental cost uh, to yourselves, but you've been powering South Africa uh, as in Pumalanga. We want Mpumalanga to continue to play that role. The only difference is that we now want to turn Mpumalanga into a green energy hub. The Commission is there to update on their progress and plans, but also to listen to the communities that will be most affected. People like Promise Mabilo. For 23 years now, I've been here in Emalatheni, and I love this place. 
a lot. So when I came here at first, I was coming for green pastures to see, uh, seeing other people saying, I'm coming from Woodbank, I want to have a job in a coal mining. There are a lot of mines. So I was dreaming, seeing like... Not only was it hard for Promise to find a job at a mine or elsewhere, her child got sick from the air pollution in the area. This was such a big problem that she teamed up with several environmental groups to take the South African government to court. Earlier this year, they won the case, forcing the government to enforce an air quality management plan for the area, recognizing poor air quality as a breach of South Africans' constitutional rights. The victory has encouraged her to continue with activism. She is now the coordinator at Vukani Environmental Justice Movement in Action. In the middle of the consultation, she gets up, starts singing, and the crowd joins her. It might sound like a celebration, but it's not. Singing has long been a tool of protest, or even mourning, in South Africa. That song was just saying, we fear no one, we fear nothing, uh, but we want to see the changes that we want as communities. Her song was a sort of challenge to the commissioners at the front of the room, a signal that says, we will be heard, we will not be ignored. But in a strange way, the fact that she was even in the room is a testament to the core principle guiding South Africa's efforts towards a just transition, which can be summed up by one word, inclusion. And the principles are procedural justice, distributional justice, and restorative justice. Steve Nichols is the head of mitigation at the BCC. That means he works with different parts of the economy to make sure they come together to invest in the just transition in fair ways, creating jobs and decreasing inequality. He said the government has been taking extensive efforts to give people a voice during this process. The meeting in Emalakhleni is just one of dozens of interactions that the PCC has held over the past two years. It's not a few people sitting in central planning offices thinking about uh, what needs to happen. It, It has to be something that happens from the bottom up because these are the things that will impact their lives. So we hear the phrase from Labour that we quite like, is no decisions about us without us. Now, no one's doing that perfectly right now. We're still learning how we might do that. A phrase you hear a lot from the PCC these days is procedural justice. In this context, procedural justice means involving the people who will be most affected in the decisions being made and the resulting changes in a fair way. And one of the reasons why this just transition can't be done without including those communities and those workers in these conversations because they need to really understand it but also have the opportunity to input into it. What kinds of skill sets do they have? What ambitions do they have? Where? Uh, what kind of industries would they like to see uh, in their regions? And, and that is really uh, the basis of procedural justice. Up to 100,000 jobs could be lost in the coal industry alone. Although, long-term, the job gains are projected to outweigh the losses. So Steve says, 
they're thinking about social and economic strategies to mitigate this, like bolstering renewable energy jobs and all the industries that might be affected, like transport. And that's the root of a lot of the frustration because you have communities who can see the the decommissioning process quite clearly, it's well communicated, it's carefully thought through, but have less certainty and less sight of what these other plans would be. And so you're effectively asking people to take known short-term risk in the face of unknown long-term benefits. And, and that's a very difficult position to put people in. This can be tough, especially for those who are already sceptical and distrustful of government efforts. At the consultation in Emelachleni, for instance, I sign an attendance register. Later, I am asked to sign another one. It even gets mentioned by the PCC organizers. It strikes me as a little overbearing, yet thorough. It's only later, when listening to some frustrated community members, that I realize some people might purposefully be dodging the register as a sort of protest. If it's just energy transition, when the microphones are down, a few of the activists confide in me that they're concerned that signing the register will allow the government to use them as pawns, providing evidence of community outreach. In general, many here tell me that just saying you've talked to a crowd is very different from actually showing that you're adopting their input. Here's activist Thomas Mnguni. People are always consulted more as a tick box exercise. But now part of a just transition should say, what do people know? How do people want to define and shape their development? So we've been advocating for that so that people could be at the centre and at the forefront of development. There's also technical hindrances to easy inclusion. Virtual sessions aren't accessible to everyone because they might not have a computer to access the internet. And attending town halls in person might require time off from work or transport. Language is another hurdle. When it was his turn to speak, Thomas stood up to address all the ways he felt outreach needed to be improved. The question is, which platforms are we using? Ne? So that we can all give an answer. So if we say we will use schools, we'll use libraries, we will use... Thomas is a community campaigner with the non-profit Groundwork Environmental Justice. And they've been working for over a decade on making the just transition inclusive in South Africa, especially when it comes to communicating with the public. Part of the campaign involved creating, printing and distributing easy-to-understand handbooks on just transition. It's full of colourful diagrams explaining the differences between green economies and ones that rely on burning fossil fuels. But Thomas's work extends far beyond making information more accessible. He's also pushing for more of a say on how just transition funds are being equally allocated. This November, the South African government released a plan that details how it will spend the $8.5 billion pledged to the country by a consortium of developed nations in order to help facilitate the just transition. He is worried about what he sees on the ground, like needs for water, healthcare and jobs not being met. Look, right now there's a high level of 
mistrust, I would put it, especially when it involves money. Positioned in between both literally and figuratively the government and the community at today's meeting is Inos Mbolacheni Mbodi. He has the distinction of representing workers at NUMSA, that's South Africa's Metal Workers Union, but he's also on the Presidential Planning Commission. We have seen some very good documents, but the implementation is what what people want to experience. While he agrees with Thomas that it's sometimes hard for the government to really understand the needs of all the various stakeholders, he's more optimistic about the plan's ability to create positive change for South Africans. So we believe it is implementable. But the fear is correct. You can have Lamborghini plants and pedestrian implementation. While he cautions that the process needs time, others worry things won't happen fast enough. David LePage runs Fossil Free South Africa, a campaign for fossil fuel divestment. There's a tension between the transition being what it should be, which is to a fossil-free economy, um, and those who are using the just energy transition narrative to essentially slow decarbonisation. David's group has multiple concerns. They're worried that some stakeholders, even within the government, don't really want to move away from fossil fuels. And having a long, complicated transition process is convenient. Also, as noble as the idea of inclusion is, doesn't it depend in part on how helpful and informed that participation really is? And in South Africa, we're in a country where up to 48% of people are de facto climate deniers. So, you know, in a country like this, you have a, a real danger that a more rapid move towards decarbonization is going to founder because of fundamental lack of public support. With so many different stakeholders with varying degrees of concerns, it's easy to understand how implementing a just transition plan is hard and complicated. But while nobody can precisely predict how the South African economy will weather this change, there's no uncertainty which direction the climate is moving. Doing nothing is simply not an option. By 2050, ESCOM plans to decommission around a dozen coal-powered plants in South Africa. There's a lot of questions of how this will be done and who will be impacted the most. What's clear is that going forward, there's going to have to be many more meetings like this one. That was Elna Schutz reporting from South Africa. India is the world's second largest coal producer and, like South Africa, heavily reliant on this fossil fuel to power its communities and economy. Because of this reliance, India pushed back during international climate talks, calling for a longer timeline to reach net zero. The plan is to decarbonize by 2070, and yet they're actually increasing coal production in the short term. This is a big deal. India is home to 1.4 billion people and is the fourth largest carbon-emitting country in the world. So figuring out how to transition India will be crucial for meeting the planet's carbon reduction goals. Sandeep Pai is a leading expert on a just transition in India. 
and a researcher at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. He knows what it's like to live in these coal-reliant communities. It was a very natural question to me that what will happen to these people? And especially around the Paris Agreement, there was a lot of euphoria about clean energy. Oh, solar will create 20 times more jobs than coal. And I would read these headlines and I would wonder, but what does that really mean for people that I have seen growing up, right? It's not that every person who is in the fossil fuel industry will just retrain into clean energy. There's so many questions. No, I mean, I think that's really interesting that your like personal experience informs your work. I mean, I, I grew up in Oklahoma, which is like a very oil and gas producing region of the U.S. And I think people underestimate how normal that feels if you're living inside it. It sort of like was a thing where my brain had to get rattled by some of the climate science after I left almost in order to see where I grew up through a different lens. I know that you're working on a number of projects in India. I don't know if any of them are in the state where you grew up, but tell me sort of what the latest is there. Do you feel like a just transition is underway in the place where you grew up? India and Indian policymakers and key stakeholders are at a stage where this debate has just started. Because when you think about just transition and coal, like there's no decline of coal yet. So many people are still grappling with the idea of a post-coal future and therefore still grappling with just transition. However, in the last two, three years, the game has changed even in India. Like three years back, you would not have found one policymaker in India who would even know what just transition is. But in the last three years, now you have the Federal Ministry of Coal forming a just transition division to understand what just transition means. That is significant. India is the second largest coal producer in the world. Then you have two most coal-dependent states, which is West Bengal and Jharkhand. Jharkhand is the state where I grew up. They are about to form a task force to understand what would a future look like if coal industries decline in these states. And finally, Coal India Limited, which is the world's largest state-owned coal company, they recently created a task force in the parent company as well as nine coal-producing subsidiary companies to understand what just transition is, what are their priorities, etc. Even unions are mobilizing on just transition. So there's one really positive thing here so far. Everybody acknowledges that this transition is coming. It's going to happen. The key question for them is like, when? And what would it mean for workers and community? So it's it's really, really positive that nobody's in denial here, at least at this stage. Can you tell me about some of the other factors at play here, whether it's like the politics or like sort of social issues? What else is on your mind as you're thinking about this 2070 deadline? I think when I think about coal in India, I have to think about direct jobs, people who actually work in mines, power plants. Then you have to think about indirect jobs, which are huge from equipment supplier to transportation of coal, induced jobs. I mean, the whole townships are created because of coal. You know, they're working as barbers or people who are selling fruits. Then you have a large section of informal jobs in India. You can call them informal. You can also call them illegal because they scavenge coal. And according to some estimates is orders of magnitude compared to the other three categories combined. The other elephant in the room is Indian railways. In India, railway fares are the lowest in the world. So 
how do you manage the railway you know which is which is also the largest formal employer in the country so that is part of the there's taxes coal revenues the federal government earns according to my calculation something like 3% of their annual budget comes from coal there's state taxes the state government's benefit and this is the hard stuff then you have all the cultural attachment right there's cricket teams there's music clubs you know it's all linked to this coal ecosystem and so how do you plan such a transition where you're able to not only bring these people to the levels that they are today uh, but also actually develop further and like bring a bright future to some of these regions i'd be really curious to hear you talk a little bit more about the cultural connection like i mean i think that's such a strong thing in the us too and i mean i think there's been a lot of justifiable criticism that that fossil fuel workers have had like an outsized voice in us political discourse and i think it's partly because there's this idea of a coal mine and a coal worker that is just an important part of the american story what is that like sort of cultural mythology like in india and how does that factor into this for you i think in india it's pretty similar to us i mean in india they're called coal warriors they're almost if not equal they're almost next to the indian army because they produce the fuel that runs the country this is very much embedded in the way people live the way people cook the way people eat they listen to you know local folk fare on coal and 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 so on and so forth so it's quite complex it's also a generational thing right a lot of people have been doing this for three generations five generations and also i mean people marry you know because somebody is a coal miner's son they would marry somebody who's a coal miner's daughter or you know whatever so it's just hard to untangle and i have never found a solution of how do you integrate just transition to the cultural question how do you create other industries that can actually inspire people to maintain some of this cultural stuff no i mean that that's like totally fascinating um and hearing you describe it it's just like all the more complicated to have this transition take place at all much less make it a just one right like and i'm wondering how you begin to think about that or or maybe like the more productive way to ask that question is like what is needed like what are the steps that you would want to see taking place to know that that transition is going to happen and you know that it might be handled more fairly than some others in history if i focus on india i think what india needs is a national plan on just transition then each state needs to create an implementation plan india has 6 7 states that will be deeply impacted as a result of any coal transition one caveat is that a lot of these states are not always the same political party that is at the central level so these states need to be on board and allow states to create their own policies and law within the national framework similarly parallelly coal companies can also do a lot interestingly in some of the districts where a company like coal india is dominant states just stop investing because all the investments are going through coal india they run schools they run hospitals so with the coal industry and the state implementation plans then you actually start to define what policies are required how do you map the different diversified sectors that you can bring in to these regions one thing to be clear you cannot have one sector come and take over you will need a cluster of industries you will have to think about 
energy and non-energy industries, you know, from agriculture to solar. One of the problems with just transition globally, not just in India, is that there's actually very few, very few good examples of just transition that has actually transformed people's lives. At best, you know, some worker has been compensated, some, you know, uh, older workers have retired and got some money, etc. But at scale, the scale that we are talking about, there's very few examples. So it's very important to articulate that this is real. Perhaps even articulate what a new future could look like. Show examples. You know, people can't imagine a life without coal. If you can do that in one or two districts in India, that will have a significant impact going into the future when we will deal with the larger transition. I mean, if you were trying to like sell the idea of a just transition to a, a co-worker in India, what, what would you say to them? I mean, I think it's a difficult conversation. So first acknowledge that they're doing an important job. They're providing the fuel, but they also suffer from health impact. Many of them, I strongly believe, if you show them that, hey, we could maybe help you find job in other industry and here's how it will happen. Not just there will be solar jobs, but here's how you can transition. I think you can really win over many, many people. So part of it is almost like admitting that this is a hard conversation and it's a hard thing. It's like not going to be just like snap your fingers and everything is the same. Yeah, it's difficult. If tomorrow somebody comes and says no job for you, you know, I, it's a difficult conversation. You know, people always say that what is our fault? We didn't cause this. Like, why are we suffering for something we haven't done? This was created by someone else living on the other side of the world. That was Sandeep Pai, lead researcher at the Global Just Transition Network at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. These aren't small shifts we're talking about here, and they won't be cheap. How do we get there and who pays, or who should pay, for the transition to cleaner energy? Next week, we take you to the global climate talks that were held late last year in Egypt. To hear how the global community is coming together to create a new fund to help developing countries grapple with climate change. That's next week on Heat of the Moment. Heat of the Moment is a partnership between foreign policy and the climate investment funds. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, Scott Andrews, Hugh Seawright, Dan Efron, Laura Rosbrow-Tellum, Claudia Tatey, and Yurei Wu. The Climate Investment Funds is a nonpartisan champion of climate action. Political views and opinions expressed in this series do not necessarily represent those of the Climate Investment Funds, foreign policy, or their partners. Until next week, I'm John Sutter. Thanks for listening.